You are listening to Mars Attacks podcast, a member of Talking Metal Digital and the Cast Iron Ring. Hey, this is Michael Lando from Adrenaline Mob. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick. Hey, everyone, this is Dave Minichetti from YNT. Hi, this is Chris Poland. Hey, this is George Lynch, Lynch Mob, talking all kinds of other projects. Hey, pay attention. This is Joe Stump. You're listening to Mars Attacks Podcast. This is Mark Zavon from Chill Devil Hill. G'day, this is Guy from Avon. How you doing? This is Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. This is Chris from In This Moment. Hey, this is Ron Bumble from Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, this is Carolina and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Guy, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. (laughs) Hi, I'm Michelangelo Badio, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and today we have episode 90, and we have a very special interview with Mr. Michael Angelo Batio, which was done a little over a week ago. I wanted to push this out last week, unfortunately, due to my recurring health issues that couldn't take place. So we are bringing it to you today on May 1st, 2014, which is technically the 1st of May for those of you outs- uh, for those of you in the US. <laughs> the majority of the world celebrates Mem- Memorial Day. I'm sorry. Labor Day on May 1st. So a lot of places around the world are shut down today. And I'm sure there are a lot working. I'm sure the, uh, <laughs> you know, the the large companies that have their phones and different things being put together in certain countries, I got a suspicious feeling that they haven't shut down. But um, let's not get too political here. Anyway, had a blast speaking to uh, Michelangelo. It was great. Uh, was the first time I've gotten to speak to him. Our good friend Dave Reffitt set everything up. 
and took a while to put all the pieces together there and finally, you know, get together and talk to him. But uh, it is what it is. We finally got to speak and had a great time doing so. He's currently over here in Europe on tour. And uh, we touch upon his touring, uh, just different things, his outlook on uh, putting songs together, what it was like to put Intermezzo together, and some very interesting comments regarding uh, people that have approached him and given him uh, props, per se, for his playing. And uh, one of them was sort of obvious, and the other one, I think, uh, make catch you off guard. Not that it's impossible that this person would enjoy his playing or whatnot, but it's a major, major player. So uh, I thought it was really cool for him to bring it up and share the whole story with us. So that's towards the end of this interview. Uh, What we are going to do throughout today's show, not only showcase some of uh, Michelangelo's uh, Michelangelo Batio's playing. Uh, there we had Juggernaut off of Intermezzo. Uh, we're also going to touch upon some other guitar greats, uh, maybe some known, maybe some lesser known uh, by some of you. And uh, we're going to play some tracks there as well. Uh, just to, you know, what I want to do is just help spread the word of some great artists that are out there, some great songs that maybe you're not aware of that are available, uh, or maybe you've lost track of an artist, didn't know that they had recently put something out, and, you know, if we can help spread the word on what they're doing, then we're more than happy to do so, especially if it's an artist that I dig. So there you go. I want to remind you guys that we do have the uh, PayPal donation button there on the homepage. Uh, We are trying to pay for this wonderful Shure SM7B that I'm currently using. Uh, We still have a ways to go to pay this off. Uh, If you guys can help out, uh, donate anything you can. Donate a dollar, donate five, donate 20. Uh, We'll all go to the microphone fund and... um, a lot of people have commented on how the mic does sound great and how it has improved the overall sound of the show. Uh, we could also thank, from Focus on Metal, Mr. Scott Thompson for helping us uh, with our setup. mentioned this a few times in the past. Focus on Metal is also part of the Cast Iron Ring network of podcasts which features not only Focus on Metal, but Radioactive Metal, features Wiki Metal out of Brazil, features our good friends from Iron City Rocks. John from Iron City Rocks also has another podcast uh, called the Heavy Metal Book Club. You also have Aaron from Iron City Rocks, which has Signal to Noise. You have Bob Nalbandian that has a few podcasts. He has all the Shockwaves podcast, which is Couch of Metal, uh, which is Shockwave Skull Sessions, and he also has the HardRadio.com podcast. We also have Bonehand Half Hour. I believe I mentioned the Radioactive Metal already, but we'll get Rock in there again a second time, just in case. And we also have the Wicked Ways 
uh, radio show, which is over there in the UK. So go to castironring.com and check all that great stuff out. And what else? So let's not forget the Talking Metal Digital stream, which you can find by taking your smartphone or tablet and installing the Live 365 app and searching Talking Metal Digital. You can also go to the Live 365 website and do the same. Or you can go to my homepage, MarsAttacksRadio.com, and just um, listen to the player on the right-hand side of the homepage. What you'll find there is music that I've helped program. You'll also find the live shows that I do from time to time, either solo or with Mark Striegel. And you'll also find, if you go to the homepage, you'll find links to uh, Talking Metal Digital as well, where we have a bunch of great shows. Not only is Talking Metal Talking Rock and Mars Attacks on there, but the latest edition you'll find, or the latest podcast added, I should say, you'll find Mitch LaFon and one-on-one with Mitch LaFon. I've actually helped out with a few of the latest episodes, uh, just helped put together, did the host raps and helped put the... Uh, episode together with DJ Ashba and Stephen Piercy. You can find all this great stuff right there on TalkingMetalDigital.com. And you could also subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher or Spreaker even. Uh, as far as Mars Attacks is concerned, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and we're trying to work the Spreaker thing in there as well. So check all those great things out. If there's any confusion, you can just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com. And on the right-hand side, you'll find the links to our Facebook, our Twitter, our Google Plus page, and anything else that we're involved in. You'll also find, I mentioned the PayPal button, you'll find the Amazon store and all the other affiliate stores that we're working with to help... um, to help bring some cash into the Mars Attacks uh, website so that we can, once again, help fund this mic (laughs) and other things that we have in mind doing down the road. So please help us out. Anyway, moving forward, want to kick things off with a little Monty Pittman. Some of you may know who Monty is. Some of you may not know who Monty is. When you see that video of Madonna playing a new level, Monty Pittman is her guitarist. He showed her how to play that. Uh, They were actually brought together when she was married to Guy Ritchie. Apparently the story goes that uh, she bought him a guitar and she was looking to give him lessons and came upon Monty. And... um, Gave him lessons, hooked up with her, gave her some lessons, and he's been her touring touring guitarist, excuse me, ever since. And earlier this year, he's released The Power of Three, which is one of my favorite albums to come out this year. 
I think the album is very cool. It has a lot of different vibes to it. It definitely has a you know hard rock metal vibe to it. It transitions into sort of a Foo Fighters, Nirvana type deal as well. And not in a bad way. Uh, a heavier side of what both of those bands have done. And I just think it sounds very cool. There's a video out there for Before the Morning Sun. And the album sounds... I mean, I'd love to talk to Monty. Hopefully uh, we can hook something up in the future. The album sounds like a classic album in the sense that the music, the drums, you know, me being a drummer first and foremost, when an album is recorded a certain way and the drums have a certain feel to it, it really pops in my opinion. It really sticks out. And just the way the album is put together, it sounds as if they got in a room and jammed it out and it sounds like an old school feeling album. Uh, this is a track off of the power of three. We're going to go with Everything's Undone, and it does have sort of that uh, Nirvana Foo Fighters type feel to it. And hope you guys like this. And remember, any track that you hear on the show that you like, go to our Amazon store and help the band out by purchasing the album or purchasing tracks off of iTunes or wherever your preferred music vendor is support the bands you love and make sure that they can, you know, put out future albums and go out there and tour for you. Uh, when people say, Oh, well, you know, Monty's playing with Madonna. Unfortunately, you know, that's probably a necessary evil to make sure that or not even an evil. I mean, I dig Madonna stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just a thing like him or, or or Nuno Betancourt having to play with with Rihanna. You know, as big as Extreme was at one point, working with Rihanna, there's there's a constant cash flow there, and it probably you know assures that he can go out and play with Extreme and do certain tours where they may not be as lucrative if he wasn't you know doing these other the these other gigs, you know, same thing with Monty doing the Madonna stuff, I'm sure allows him to do these solo albums. He was a member of prong at one point as much as I love prong. And you guys know that I do being a member, being the second guitarist in prong, isn't going to give him as much money as being in Nirvana. You know, unfortunately that's the economic truth of how the music industry works. So, being with Madonna allows him to do the power of three. So that's just my opinion. Again, I hope to speak to him at some point in the future and discuss this further. This is Monty Pittman with Everything's Undone.
to the Mars Attack Podcast. Here is your host, Victor. Let's get it up. All right. That was a little Monty Pittman. Again, if you like that, go check that album out. One of my other albums that I've been digging this year is the Red Dragon Cartel with Jakey Lee. And it's funny that people, after waiting for Jake to come back with something, there's some people out there that still don't know that he's released something. Because I've read things online and I've had people, you know, say to me, Hey, you know, I heard Jake was coming out with something. He has. It just isn't called Jakey Lee. It's called Red Dragon Cartel. Uh, this is the track War Machine. I really dig this song. Uh, again, if you like it, help us out. Help the artist out. Go to our Amazon links and purchase the album. Here we go. A Little Red Dragon Cartel with War Machine.
to the Mars Attacks Podcast. Here's your host, Victor. Get your pull. All right. We heard a little Red Dragon Cartel there with the track War Machine. And what we're going to do is get into a little Michelangelo Batio. This is coming off of Intermezzo. The name of this track is I Pray the Lord. He discusses this track during the interview. Uh, We'll get to that, and then we'll jump right into the interview before ending the show.
And uh, just kicking things off, I was reading some of the information that was online, and I found it interesting that you had started out playing on the piano. And this is something that I'm really trying to get my wife behind in getting both of my sons involved in playing piano before they learn any other instrument. How important was playing the piano first to you developing as a guitarist? Well, I think uh, I have a degree in music, and it does not make me a better musician or it doesn't make me smarter than anyone, anyone but but I, I learned a lot about music, about all the different eras, and, and I study rock music and, and any genre, like I would study Bach or Beethoven, but I think piano is the foundation of everything for one reason. When you look at a violin, when you when you look at a guitar, just physically look at it, you don't really see, you see frets, you see strings, you know, you don't see frets on a violin, but a piano is different. A piano, you see keys, and every octave is the same configuration. So it's one of the only instruments that everything is right in front of your face. And so um, what I think and, and what I highly recommend is whatever instrument you play, if it's not keyboards, have a basic knowledge of the piano. Because I know for myself on intermezzo uh, I, and on a lot of my previous albums, a lot of parts are composed on a keyboard, even though people never know it. And it's a very useful tool because you can look at a piano and see the notes, right? You see the white keys, you see the black keys, and all of a sudden you realize it's the same pattern over and over and over. And it's so, in other words, I recommend it highly to any person who plays an instrument, whether or even our drummer uh, in my band is a really good piano player. You know, he plays other instruments and uh, I found it's very beneficial. Gotcha. Do you think learning the piano lent to um, you being able to pick up the uh, right-handed guitar instead of going out and playing with with a left-handed guitar since you are naturally a lefty? I, I Yes, uh, I agree 100%. And I found out, too, be, be, for example, there are no left-handed pianos. I mean, you know, and there, no, there are no left-handed violins. So, yes, but there were left-handed guitars, although when I started to play they were not available. You know, they're available now, but, but I, yeah, I really felt it was a big advantage. Um, I worked harder on my picking hand because that was my weak hand, but yes, I think my background in piano, it helped me, uh, to get dexterity, uh, in, and especially in my left hand to be able to play the guitar. And you just touched upon your last album, Intermezzo there. How long did it take you to put the material together for the album? Um, well, what you know, I tour extensively uh, every year of every year of my life for the last. Tw- I started traveling around the world twenty years ago, so it's been a while. Um, every year of my life, I do over a hundred shows, and and so what I do is, you know, now with the technology, I used to bring a cassette recorder on the road with me. Um, now I just use my iPhone. I record song ideas. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. I'll hum an idea into my phone. I'll have a guitar. I'll be doing a sound check. I'll, I get an idea. I record it. And then um, what I did was it, it took from the time I started to re- recording it to the time I released it almost two years because of all the touring. But all those I had hundreds of song ideas that I had in my phone before I started writing the music. And I went through all of them. It took days to go through all the pieces, pick out the ones I liked. And then, and then I started writing from there. So that's how I did it. 
do you ever revisit any of say the cassette recordings or things that maybe you've done on your iPhone or any other device previous to this album at any point, or once you've started recording an album, that previous cycle is more or less done with. No, I, I, no, I, I actually do that occasionally. I, I like, you know, I've written, I don't know, probably close to a thousand finished songs. I really write a lot of music. I mean, this is my 11th solo album and, and people don't realize I've, I've quietly put out and that's not even counting nitro or, or my former band from Nitro on Atlantic Records, Holland. Uh, you know, I have a big discography, and, and I write a lot of music. And, and I love to arrange music. You know, when I do my tributes, you know, I always make them in my own style. But, yeah, I, on Intermezzo, there's a song called I Pray the Lord. And there's a part in 5-4 in, uh, in, in the song. And it's, it's always – I wrote that part when I was right around 18 years old. And I, and, and, but the part ever, the whole song around that was really stupid. <laughs> it wasn't one of my better songs, but I always loved that part. And I'd written the bass line. I had a counter melody for it. And I, and I, when I was writing that song, I prayed the Lord. I, I, I kept playing this song, that part of the song when I was a kid. And it seemed to fit, but I don't, but I don't do that all the time, but I do revisit some, some parts every once in a while. So to answer your question, yes. This album is really stacked with a ton of guest soloists, guest artists. How did you get everyone involved? Was it easy? Was there anyone that slipped away that you wanted to get involved? Yeah, there was one artist that slipped away. And, and you know, I, don't, I think nothing is that comes out good is easy. You know, I'm really proud of Intermezzo. I, I think it's the best album I've ever done. But I, I, I'm not a lone wolf. I, I know that, you know, I, I can do solo concerts and, and, and things that only involve me as a player, but I don't mix my own records. I, I don't, I don't, I let other people that do things better than me do, do what they do. Uh, I don't do my own website. And, and so, but what, with this album, um, Dave Reffitt, uh, you know, a great young guitar player. And uh, he, he's a very good friend of mine. Plus he's a great player. And it was really him and myself that, that, you know, I wanted to get some good artists. I, I, I had talked with like, for example, Rusty Cooley, you know, he's a good friend. And, and I talked to Elliot Dean Rubinson, the owner of Dean guitars. And then, and then when I started talking to Dave, I mentioned to him, you know, we, we were talking and, and we started throwing out names and, you know, I started saying it and he said, you know, I'm really good friends with George Lynch. And I said, yeah, I know George. And I said, I don't think I know him as well as you. And, and I said, what do you think about getting him on Intermezzo? And so once we got people like George Lynch and Jeff Loomis, those two names seemed to open up the floodgates. And then, and Dave was really instrumental in helping me out a lot. And, and my idea, you know, my, my previous uh, two solo albums, I got people like Mark Tremonti. He played on two of my records the last two in a row, you know, Rudy Sarzo, Bobby Rock on drums. So I've always had the propensity to, to get, you know, great names on my albums. But this one, I wanted to make bigger, better in every way. And, and Dave really helped out a lot. But there was one name that slipped away, only one, and it was Herman Lee. Because Herman and I are friends, and I wanted him to play on one solo on my song Intermezzo. And he had never done a solo uh, like that on another person's record. Never, ever. 
So he wasn't really comfortable, but we're still buddies. And I told him the next one, but I, I just love it because, you know, I have people on the album, like, you know, Guthrie Govan doing two solos. He's amazing. Jeff Loomis, Dave Reffitt did a fantastic solo. George Lynch, Michael Romeo, you know, Chris Poland. I mean, the list, you know, Mike LaPon, you know, Symphony X's bassist, just so many great names that, that, and, and they all did their best work. You know, I, I, I mean, every solo on there is just mind boggling. And in, in my humble opinion, you know, I, I really, and I told my engineer, Chris, I said, Chris, err on the side of caution. If you think those solos are even a touch too soft, you crank them up. So they're loud and in your face. <laughs> and I love it. Very cool. And did you get to listen to the solos before preparing your own solos or were yours done beforehand? No, I, I, you know, in all fairness, I listen to everybody else's, you know, why not? Uh, and, you know, for example, uh, and, and partly is because we were, when I was writing, we were actually, you know, it's a nice thing with, with modern software. I was, I had, for example, the song eight pillars of steel, the end was actually seven pillars. And we ended up getting, uh, you know, Craig Goldie from, from Dio and, and he became the eighth. So I was composing as we were sending out tracks and, and, and the, you know, the great thing about, you know, having it be your own record is I can listen to what the other players did. And, and, and uh, but um, so, no, you know, I, I don't think I, so no, I didn't do my solos first, but I also, the thing that I loved about this album is my idea was not to, to, to uh, outplay any of the players. It was to put the best solos that I could put in context with everybody else. And I think that when you, when you listen to the album, that's the spirit of the album. It's not head cutting. It's not, it's not competition. We all, everybody just tried to do the best they could do. Gotcha. To an extent though, the solos did encourage you or drive you to make sure that your solos were on par with everything that was provided to you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, we're all in that league, you know, I mean, everybody's in that league where it's kind of like a professional athlete, you know, you're in the, you're already in the pro. So, you know, it's not like, you know, anybody has to prove anything to anybody else, but for example, Guthrie, I really love his guitar playing and he likes to mimic other guitar players. He's really good at, you know, doing in the style of, and so before he played his solo, um, there was a guitarist, an Italian guitar player, amazing player named Alex Sternello, who did a very, Alan Holsworth fusion type solo. And then what I did is I segued between Alex's and I mimicked Guthrie and then it goes into Guthrie solo, you know, so I did things, you know, kind of playing off other guitar players, you know, and, and, and it was really fun for me. I loved it. Cool. Would you ever consider doing the same thing, but with various vocalists on an album? Uh, that would be great, except I would love that. Uh, I think singers are harder to, to, to work with in some respects, but, um, you know, get, you know, just by nature that they're the front person, but yes, I would, I would very much like to do that. That'd be great. Would you approach an album like that differently? Would you approach it based on who you have envisioned to sing the tracks or would it be you just writing same as usual and trying to bring someone in to sing a certain style? No, I, I think, that well you know i can use intermezzo as an example when i get an idea of who i'd like to to do it for example herman lee i i, I part of intermezzo was written um in that this one section kind of like 
what I, I I thought it would be easy for him because it was I wrote a progression kind of like Dragon Force, and for example the fusion song that that uh, Guthrie Govan played on. I felt that that was really in his style. So if I had a great vocalist, like I'm friends with Joe Lynn Turner, for example, you know, he, he's a, he's a cool guy. You know, I know him pretty well. I know his voice. So I would, I would tailor the material to suit his voice and I, you know, and maybe even collaborate with him on things. For example, Dave Reffin and I, uh, Dave wrote this song juggernaut on my album. And I mean, and I mean, to listen to, you know, the, the tempo's 200 BPM, which isn't, over crazy fast but it's pretty fast and and i mean chris poland is flying on it and playing this amazing solo michael romeo is playing this amazing solo we had these people in mind with the type of track we did and i, I would do that with singers too gotcha okay there's another thing that you touched on a little earlier on in the interview which is how you've covered uh, other people's work in the past. It seems as if you approach this more like a classical composer or a conductor even, uh, sort of pulling pieces from classical music and fusing it together into a new composition. Um, I found that refreshing. The, the thing that I guess um, uh, sort of what I'm trying to get at is a lot of modern fans, however, of the rock genre or hard rock or metal genre seem to be stuck in a mindset where only the original artists can interpret a track. Why do you think people have sort of foregone this mindset that's existed for centuries to now only want specific artists to interpret specific pieces of music? I I think it's a closed minded attitude and it's like you said for centuries uh i i in, when i was uh, a boy and when i was i i know thousands of cover songs i mean i i know so many led zeppelin songs i used to figure out michael schenker riffs you name it uh you know so many different artists but i never my thinking was this i am never going to play Jimi hendrix better than Jimi hendrix can play Jimi hendrix so you know so why even try so I can, I can play his lead, but I play it in my own style. And I think this is one of the things that finally, after all these years, people are seeing about me. I, I'm a great arranger. I have an orchestral mind. I can score for a symphony orchestra. I studied it. Um, I, I, I love to incorporate and I, uh, a classical elements, but I don't sound like Ingve. I've never have because I'm not a, just a Baroque style uh player and, and i'm not saying ingvay's locked in that i love him to death i think he's fantastic but his music is geared more towards johann sebastian bach vivaldi his interpretation of orchestral music is in the baroque era mine's not mine could be the romantic era the the impressionistic it could be uh early 20th century i i use uh classical elements and to me, it's like it, it, it ties in all the song uh, parts. But and the thing, you know, when somebody says, for example, my interpretation of Randy Rhodes, I played his music completely different than he would play it. His mother loved it. His sister loved it. His 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 brother, uh, they've had me for two Randy Rhodes events and they they uh, and in L.A. And they said the same thing that you've done a fresh interpretation of the music and i and i ask myself why would somebody want to play a black sabbath song exactly like black sabbath 
You're never going to do it. You're never going to sing it better than Ozzy. You're never going to play it Tony Iommi better than Tony Iommi. But and and how many times over the years has another artist done reinterpreted a song and it became a hit? Elton John did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, I think The Cure did Purple Haze or one of those. There are so many artists that that interpret other people's music. Eric Clapton took Bob Marley's songs. So it's it's been proven time and time again that they become hits. And when I hear people say, I, I don't think you should do that, I, I don't care what they say. <laughs> I could care less because I I have to like it at the end of the day. If I don't like it and I don't believe in it, then I can't promote it. But if I believe in it, it doesn't matter what people tell me. I believe it. That, and that's how I, I, I view my own music. A former student of yours, uh, Tom Morello, recently gave a great speech regarding how establishments like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have shunned hard rock and metal, uh, something that obviously you're well-versed in. Why do you think that certain establishments have turned their back on uh, you know, forms of rock music that have essentially kept the genre alive? I, that's a great question. Here's my thinking of it. When, when I look through my, my life from playing guitar, Growing up, you know, in the era of Zeppelin and all that, and then being up, being, you know, uh, you know, a major label metal rocker in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then now having the career that I've got, rock has always, especially hard rock, it's always been underground. Other than the era of Guns N' Roses in the 80s, you know, when I, I mean, I was in the L.A. glam scene. I know I was there on Sunset Boulevard handing out flyers next to Flash. I mean, next to Slash. I was thinking CC to the Flash. That's funny. But um, next to Slash. And the idea of metal and rock being underground, I think, is what's cool. It's like it's our music. It's not yours. And it's like you said. Look at Iron Maiden. They don't have to have songs on the radio. Look at myself. I, I learned a long time ago that if you live and die by the radio, by your song on the radio, you better be one heck of a songwriter. And Iron Maiden, and you have to be a pop artist. The Rolling Stones were essentially a pop band. They, you know, I'm not saying they are now, but the Beatles were essentially a pop act. And so they they produced hits. They were, I'm a prolific songwriter too, but I'm not a pop act. Um, Iron Maiden, look at Deep Purple. They only had, what, one or two songs on the radio? They, it's Metal has always been like that. It's always been the music that, 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 that seemed to be shunned by the mainstream, except in the era right around the late 80s when, when Whitesnake and Guns N' Roses, it dominated the airwaves at that time, but not before and not really after. You know, yeah, we had grunge, and but there were there were it became like the mainstream music for that short brief time, and then you know rap and all the other things in the '90s and hip hop. You know, of course, the Seattle scene, but I think that's one of the the things that makes it special. Even country music, country music hits a stride; it becomes mainstream, then it goes back underground a little bit, then it comes back up again. And you know, it's they say rock and roll will never die. Um, I just read a survey literally today. When you um, and and in rock music, it's not the way it was. It's not dominating the airwaves, but it's still really popular. In England, rock records were the number one selling uh, type type of music in 2013. So it's still there, but it's different. You've obviously played, you know, the double guitar, the quad guitar. You have a seven string model out as well. What do you consider 
your your biggest change as an artist when it comes to playing over the years? Well, th- I, and again, I, I defer. Um, there was a, a recent review. I've been getting great reviews on Intermezzo. One of the reviews said it's it is it's one of the greatest instrumental albums ever. Another one said I've been uh, and they've uh, that I've been on my game for thirty years. There, there are things that people don't know about me. One, I'm a student of guitar, and I'm a student of music. So I've kept my skill level incredibly high all these years, and I've never let it down. Two, I've always had a gift for arranging, and I've always had a gift for writing. And and people don't want to give credit where credit's due many times. Like, you do original arrangement of, of, a, of a song like uh, Crazy Train, like I did, there's um, so many people have said Randy Rhodes would be proud, but you get those people that say this sucks. It's not like the original. Um, you can put a hit song in their face and some people say, well, you can't write. And so I think the biggest thing I really have not changed the way I play. I have become better. I, I know my sound. I know my vibrato. But I think now people are starting to figure out how good of a writer I am. Because I've always been able to write. I was on two major labels writing songs. I've written so many different types of music. But I think that's the the secret as one gets older, to keep the music at a really high level. And that's what I've strived to do, That to not put out a bad album. When I did my tribute album, Hands Without Shadows, it came out great. It came out really good. I got great people to, to play on it. I got gr- a great uh, engineer that I've worked with a long time to mix it. I, I, I had great people around me. And on Intermezzo, I tried to write the best music I could and never sacrifice the way I play guitar because somebody said, well, you don't play. You play too fast. You play this. I, again, I just don't care. I play the way I play and I let people judge. <laughs> That's the way I think. How do you think working on instrumental videos and writing for magazines has helped you out as a musician? Well, I think that it's experience. And and the more great people that you work around and you work with, uh, I think you, you get things from them, that ideas from them that you wouldn't have. And I, I think, you know, we used to have a saying uh, a long time ago that you can't soar with the eagles if you hang out with turkeys. So if turkeys can't fly, an eagle flies. So if you if you associate yourself with really great people, there are those ideas, you know, a genius, uh, a person who's a genius, genius doesn't rub off. I mean, you can't become a genius by hanging out with a genius, but you can see different work ethics that people have or different ways they write music or different ways they edit videos and you get ideas. And, and that's what I do all the time. I, I, I work with really great people. I have a, a big group of people that I work with, and they're constantly doing things that they would they would suggest things from a Dave Reffitt to my engineer Chris to Guthrie Govan uh, to to Chris Poland, uh, you know, to George Lynch that that they bring something to the table that's unique, and you can learn from them. And that's why I say I'm always a student. I can I'm not I never think I'm so good that I can't learn anything new. And that's what I think the biggest secret is about maintaining a great career. Just have people around you that are that are happening. And you've had a Dean signature model for a few years now. You've had several yes, uh signature models actually. Yes. What was it like to put the first signature model together uh when someone like Dean comes to you? And proposes to have a Michelangelo 
model put together. Did you ever expect growing up to be put in such a situation? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because you know how you you know I said the seven string and the quad and the double. I I I'm a guitar designer. I'm a guitar inventor. And, and when you said you know what what do you do? And then this is how I'll, I'll answer your question with a with the signature model. I really don't have. I've said what I have to say with my double guitar, although, you know, I can do new solos, but to me, it's the music. And so Mm -hmm. that's really my quest. It's not really to invent new guitars anymore. You know, I've already done my thing. I've already done a double guitar. It's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm honored, you know, that I have an invention that that other big artists have used. And but now with with a Dean guitar, you're going to laugh. I didn't even want a signature guitar for, for a couple of years because I felt. Unless your name is Les Paul, nobody's going to buy it. And then what I did is I, I – and then when Dean Guitar said, you know, look at Michael. We, we think you can you – you, you have enough fans out there. We think you, your signature would sell. What I did is I, I, I kind of – I did a little study, and I, I looked at things, reasons why I would never buy a signature guitar from someone else. And I, I wrote those down, one big one. Where and this is what I didn't do. I kind of quietly started something. I I told Dean Guitars I don't want my name on this guitar, and I especially see a lot of times guitars will put their initials on the twelfth fret. They'll put their name all over it, and and basically it guarantees um, only your uncle or your brother or sister is going to buy it because. We all have egos, and most of us don't want to buy another guitar from someone else and promote another guitarist. So what I did is I, I said to Dean Guitars, let's just make one that's almost anonymously mine and make it a great guitar. And they said, well, we have to call it something to affiliate with you. And so, you know, we, you know, a lot of my fans call me MAB. So we called it the MAB series. But if you notice on the guitars, there's no markings that say it's me. There's nothing on the front. And then on the back, they they did start putting my logo on there, like a silhouette logo. Um, but I, it was a very it was a great honor for me to get a signature guitar. And and again, I defer to my own philosophy. I had to like the guitar. And when I when I perform live, and I the only I use all stock Dean guitars. The only thing that I will do differently is most of my signature guitars have EMGs because they're they're very popular and they're great. Well, I like passive pickups as well. And I have my own signature model through Dean Guitar that's a passive. So I'll take out the active pickups, which are EMGs, and put on my own passive sometimes, not all the time. But the guitars I play live are stock guitars that anybody could buy. And it was an honor making them, and, and I'm just glad they sold well. But, but I thought very hard about not making it the Mikey Ego guitar. I wanted it to be like Chris from a Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He used one of my signature models for one of the entire TSO tours. And he told me, he goes, I don't care if it's your signature model, man. He goes, the guitar is great. And then that's exactly what I wanted to hear. That's cool. Yeah, that's a lot of times, as you're saying, you know, you, you see these signature models come out and it's so distinct so distinctly associated to one person that it's almost impossible that you'll ever see anyone play that guitar out because of all the, the you know the the points that you just mentioned well thanks yeah i mean I, you know i i thought if dean's gonna make it they're a company and they're a great company they have to sell them but i you know i really sure. you know I, I just you know i mean it's just my philosophy about things i i don't want to just throw something out there it's a you know it's a legacy thing as well i want to put out good things 
and and I want to I want to look back and say, you know, what I did back then was really good, and and and, and that's what we tried to do. And and Dean Guitars is a great company, and and the owner Elliot. I mean, he played on the song Eight Pillars of Steel. He, he is a, he's not a good bass player. He's a great bass player. And he's passionate about right. what he does. And that, that's why I think, you know, that's why I love Dean so much. And now we have over 10, 10 Mikey signature models, and it, it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. There are a lot of really cool-looking um, graphics on the guitars themselves. How involved are you with picking those graphics? Well, what, what I do is... Uh, uh, if you come to my house, I, I like armor. I like military things, even though I've never been in the military and I'm not what I consider a fighter. Uh, but I love looking at armor, whether it's like conquistadors or Romans or or samurais or African. I don't care. But uh, so around my house, I have different types of armor all over the place. And and what I did with the graphics is um, I use great graphics, people. I don't design it myself, but I have ideas. And, and one of the right. graphics designers from Dean Guitars, he's no longer there anymore, but he came over to my house one time. And the second you walk in, you see a suit of armor. And then to the right, you see shields. And, and I even have a Hawaiian, like this sword with, with, it's just, it's wild, some of the things I've got. And, and he looks and he, man, he goes, you like armor? I said, yes. And, and so our my first guitar signature was called an armor flame. And we literally did European, like, armor. And then I like fast cars and NASCAR and, and you know, f- you know, muscle cars. And so we mixed it with NASCAR flames. It's and, and it was different. I mean, how many people have put a suit of armor as a graphic on a guitar? And it sold really well. It was it was something different. It looks fantastic. But we used I used their graphic artists and it was based on an idea that he actually came up with by just knowing me and seeing my house. So even with the graphics, uh, you're a bit of an arranger as well, because although you may not have the talent to do the actual graphics, you know how to point people in the direction to get what you want. Exactly. That's what we do. Yeah. And, and again, it's a collaboration. I really think. You know, if any, you know, people listening out there, if they get anything from me, I work, I like to work with really good people. And, and, you know, I, can I learn how to use Photoshop really well? Yeah, I could. But why? There's other people who do it better. And Dean has great graphics people. I work with them. They, and, and, you know, we'll go back and forth. I'll say, well, I don't like this line here. I mean, I get really detailed about it, but we work well together and then we create the best product we can. And then, then we let the public decide. What do you consider to be the biggest compliment you've received from a fellow player? I think it was actually uh, there. There's there have been a lot. I'll give you two from really famous guitars. Tom Morello came up to me at a NAMM show, and he goes, "Michael, thank you." And I go, "Why?" He goes, "Thank you." He said, "He goes taking lessons from you was a musical epiphany," and because he he had speeditis, he called it. He couldn't coordinate his hands. Um, I have I have kind of a gift when I when I watch a player play, I can kind of analyze no matter what style they play, like if there's any deficiencies in their technique and I can kind of point them in the right direction. And so Tom gave me one of the greatest compliments ever and that that, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of accolades and I never take my career for granted. But when when somebody that famous tells you that they helped you, that, that I helped them. I mean, that's probably one of the greatest fulfilling things. And, and I just recently in, in Los Angeles, 
I was doing a show at the Whiskey, a go-go. You know, it's their their big anniversary year this year. I think the 50th anniversary at the Whiskey in Hollywood. And I was playing with Uli John Roth and then Bumblefoot, you know, Guns N' Roses, uh, one of one of right. their guitars. We were it was us three as guitar players. Elliot, uh, Dean Rubinson, the owner of Dean, was on bass, and we were uh, we were going up to do our set. And I was backstage, and I went to go say hi to Uli. And Elliot was standing like three, you know, three feet from me, one meter away. And I look at all of a sudden this guy comes up to me. He's like Michelangelo. And he starts waving his arms like my double guitars. He goes, man, he goes, I watch your videos. He goes, how do you do that? He's going off. He's like ultimate fan. It's Kirk Hammett from Metallica. <laughs> and and uh, he came to the show. Him and James Hatfield were both at, at the show. And not just to see me, but to see Uli and 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 Bumblefoot and and uh, it was amazing. And so, uh, and, you know, we were talking about music and, and, and uh, but I've really wanted to be a credit to the guitar community. I wanted to be able to help people. And I think, you know, when you have, you know, really big artists that say they're your fans or somebody like Tom Morello told me that it was a musical epiphany when I, when I gave him lessons, Th- those are two of the best things I've ever heard. Was Tom Morello known when you gave him lessons, or this was before anyone really knew who he no, was? No, I was in college at the time. You know, Tom and I are actually not that far apart in age. And and uh, so he was a student when I was going to school. He was completely unknown. And, and, you know, I was completely unknown. I was just, you know, a college kid. And, and so really it was just back in the day. Gotcha. Were you aware that it was one of your students in Rage Against the Machine when they came out? Or was that something that caught you sort of off guard later on? Um, it caught me off guard later on. I didn't know, you know, because, you know, it was so long ago. And, you know, it was Tom was just one of many students that I had. And, and but w- when he did become big and that's when we had met. And, and then I realized I put I put the name together with the face and, and then it all made sense to me. But no, I didn't know until they became big, you know, because we had lost contact with each other, you know, and, you know, I didn't know where he lived and I was gallivanting all over planet earth. And then we ran into each other uh, at a, at a NAM show. So shortly after rage became big. Yeah, that's how it happened. Gotcha. Okay. And you're going to be doing a bunch of different dates starting in two days, uh, from what I've seen on your site and what we discussed off air. Um, you're you're actually doing different types of shows. There's solo shows, and there are some listed as uh, Michelangelo: The History of Metal. Yes. How do the various shows vary between one another? Well, I, I'm very fortunate because I have I've got a diversified career. I have I have three different kinds of shows. Well, actually four, but three main ones. Um, I do um, the History of Metal. Are my interpretations of of classic artists in a chronological order, like where we'd start off with Black Sabbath and go on to Zeppelin. And, you know, it starts around that timeline because, you know, that's really when metal, and then I do Judas Priest and, but I do do them within the context of my style. And I have a singer that's a sound alike guy. He's amazing. He can sound like James Hatfield. He can sound like Dave Mustaine. He he can sound virtually, you know, sound like Robert Plant, sound like uh, David Lee Roth. And and uh, so that's and it's a multimedia show. We've got video screens and, you know, it's a band format. And then one of the other things that I do are Dean Clinics. And, and so they're one man, you know, they're but uh, Elliot, the, the owner, 
lets me do a clinic in a, in a unique way. It's almost like a performance. It's like an educational performance experience. I get to tell great stories about being on the road and just, you know, it, it's a really a cool thing. And then the other uh, thing that I do is, is uh, do solo performances. And, and in between that, you know, we do celebrity type events. For example, I, I'm leaving for Romania tomorrow playing a couple of shows in Bucharest. Then I go to Poland and I'm going to be playing uh, one of the audiences is over 10,000 people. I'll be with Steve Vai. And then we're playing uh, and, and then we're going, going to jam on a song, an old 60s song called House of the Rising Sun with the original band. Right. It's Eric Burden and the Animals. And, and he's right. going to be there. So so I get to do some really, really great shows and I can't complain. You know, so it's with the band, without the band. I, I love it all. Excellent. If people want to keep up to date with the shows that you're doing or any other news pertaining to you, where should they go? Um, and my website is Angelo.com. And, and I, you know, I've had this site for a long time. And, you know, we also have a mail order company. You can get all my CDs and DVDs, everything there. And, you know, of course, I'm digitally everywhere, you know, iTunes and all over planet Earth. But, but uh, yeah, it's Angelo.com. That's, that's all things Mikey. Hi. I'm Michelangelo Badio, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to Mars Attacks. To follow the radio show and podcast, like us on Facebook by going to Facebook forward slash Mars Attacks Radio. You'll find us on Twitter also. Follow us at Mars Aries 2005. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, or just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com to download or stream episodes. Or you can just go to the homepage of MarsAttacksRadio.com to find out more about the radio show and podcast. This concludes our show.